0: Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers' Program.
1: Like other descendants of hunters and gatherers, with their periphery spotting seasons lighting yonder or the scarcity of game outside their 9-to-5 window, there's always something better shaping elsewhere out there, and I was missing it.
0: This program features the work of 2017 writer D.A. Navoti. Curator Jordan Amani keith sat down with him in the studio.
2: What question is driving your project, or what questions is driving the work that
1: you're exploring? The question is, who am I? essentially. I mean, I think people, especially in the mainstream sense that when they think of an indigenous person, you know, they have these caricatures. Um, They assume that everything's sacred, you know, it's, it's a buzzword in indigenous community. But I think for me, why don't I fit in that space? Why don't I fit in that caricature, you know, and I just want to explore just who I am and how do I fit in this bigger community of indigenous intellectuality? So I, I, so to answer your question, is just who am I?
2: Mm-hmm. What I hear is that there's some constraints from perhaps the outside community, but within mm-hmm. indigenous communities or, or yours specifically, perhaps, that say, OK, this is the outline that you fit into. How don't you fit in, if you will?
1: Um, you know how I do not fit in is since a kid I've always loved books. I always go to the library, and even if, it, if there weren't things I could understand, I mean I just went through so many different phases of studying. Uh, you know, dinosaurs, volcanology, meteorology, seismology. Like there was just so a list of things that I just got so interested in. I would go to the library and just have stacks of books on the table, and I would just go and just glance at them, try to read them. But I think for where I grew up and the community I come from, reading and literature is just not part of the cultural itself. I think it's certainly more oral tradition. But for me, I think just me being in a book was kind of a yellow flag, I guess, for my community that oh, what what's he doing? Why, why is he reading? What is he reading? Why is he reading that? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was something that for me I didn't fit in. The other thing is that you're born on the motherland. And you're supposed to stay there, and that's where you're going to die. But, I mean, again, as I was saying earlier, ever since I was a kid, I just want to explore. I asked so many questions as a kid. It really annoyed my dad. Um, and then one of my essays, I addressed that my dad was just kind of so fed up with my questions. He bought me this big book of Tell Me Why. And it's just this really big volume of just all these questions and their answers about just – uh about science, uh, humanities and it was all in a, in a kid friendly way. but I think for me it's just I've always asked questions of why this, why that? And um, so that's another way that I guess I didn't fit in. It's just that I want to just explore around the world. And I'm very thankful that I have been able to go explore around the world and travel and learn that. But I think also it's just the uh, being gay indigenous person. The missionaries in the early 19th century really did impact how indigenous people live. And um, I think there's a lot of indigenous homophobia out there. So that's another thing is navigating that landscape and that battleground as a as a gay indigenous person. And then also another thing I don't—a reason I don't fit in is I'm an atheist. I just—since again, since I was a kid, I just—I always questioned things. And for me, it just didn't jive well. I just didn't sit with me. And so um, I'm very satisfied being a part of that community, the atheist community. But it also means that I might have to let go some of that indigenous part of me because, you know, just communities select their own members. And I just— Unfortunately, in some people's eyes, don't belong to that community anymore. So,
2: In the celebrating of the natural world, do you find yourself overtly guiding people to look at it from an atheist perspective when there is a layer maybe of assumption?
1: I'm glad you asked that because I want to write a pilgrim at Tinker Creek, a Walden, but with an atheist perspective. I think as much as great as those works are, they really did rely on talking about God creating everything, which I think is kind of (laughs) lazy. I'd I'd rather have a a deeper, more profound response to that of why nature is the way it is. And I think, you know, reading Darwin's work or all these people in the 18th century, these essays that they just started discovering this, I want to grab that scientific analysis and transform into poetry, I guess. But I mean, yeah, so I I, I do what I want to write stuff, nature writing from an atheist perspective, and that is without God, and that there is a process, an evolution behind nature.
2: I'd like to know what made you a writer. At what point did you begin writing, and was there a particular moment or author that encouraged you on that path?
1: Writing itself, the history is, I remember being six or seven and having these journals. I remember they would be at school, these, these kids with journals, and they were kind of fancy looking and had the little locket. It looked so expensive then, but looking back now, it's like one of those cheap locks that you can just pit a paperclip in and it's open. But I just remember looking at that and like, oh, that's so cool. You can pit whatever you want in there. And so I would just go home and get some printer paper and fold it and then, like, draw a little lock on there and then write these secrets. And I would just – I don't remember what I wrote, but I just remember one time I got so afraid that someone would read what I wrote in there. So I went to the backyard, took some matches, (laughs) and lit it aflame. And I just probably put, like, some word like damn or hell or something like that, thinking this is the world's darkest secret. But um, I remember that and just the thrill, though, of, like – Oh, I can do this with writing. I can go that way or this way. And then as I continued going to the library a lot on the weekends as a kid and just looking at different types of language in print, for me that was just the thing that really pushed me to start considering this more, even though I didn't call myself a writer then. it really didn't happen until probably high school when we had read The Picture of Dorian Gray. And that was just like a, you can write that, you can say that, you know, homoeroticism, you can be witty, and I just, I fell in love with it, and it just felt so dangerous. And then I just started reading more band literature and then going into college, and it kind of just, the snowball just was just so heavy and so big that I just couldn't stop it, and I just started rolling with it and started writing, so... It's been a journey. It's not just like a aha day, but it's just been mm. stuff adding on along the way.
2: What permission do you hope you will give a young person reading your work?
1: I think when you say young people, for me it taps into what I my day job. You know, I've been working and supporting young people over a decade now, working as a teacher from elementary to high school to college, working nonprofit, working with homeless youth and Teenage boys in recovery. So for me, passing on that torch to a young person is very important to me. It's part of my values. It's just what I've been doing for such a, a for a while now. But what I w- like to offer is that everything has its beginning, middle, and end, and to appreciate that. And when you're in your middle, you get as much work you shine as much as you can, and then when that gets close to your end and whatever that means in your life or your career or whatever, that it's time to pass that torch down and create those opportunities. So for my writing, at least, I just want to reach out to people, especially for those young kids that go to the library, just to look at different types of books out there. Maybe they'll stumble on mine and say, oh, this is one way of writing. And, and I want young people to disagree with what I say what I write because then that's even deepens the conversation and so that's what I, I want to happen. I don't have all the answers. I ask more questions and answer them so I want more young people to question what I have to offer.
0: Now we'll hear a selection from DA's live reading.
1: A pilgrim like myself would mourn the weather wild in the Sonoran wasteland, the twisting and groaning of mesquite fibers, with the brave downpour striking cheeks like a rival rising against a bully or a lover, which are contrasting ends of the same somebody, and of the shifting gray staining mountains that could never bow to the howling battery rearing thickets of tumbleweeds nested along the Sierra Estrella range. Yet dewdrops round cliff corners, Sonoran cliffs that begged for more days ahead while rain scrubbed grains away was winter. Clouds hung low that evening and that wind that yell whipping eardrums both human and wild shaped granular whiskers off the chins of masculine virtues and that is why I felt naked yet honest a two-faced somebody braving the elements soaked cold. The desert was maddened and I the Pima pilgrim lamented what I'd forgotten through days years memories gone by not so often and like feminine rapture cresting out of the womb. The desert motherland lubricates surprises and traps, for I had returned briefly, caught between violent sky and stubborn land, inside a throaty storm deafened by its windy crescendo, afoot slippery rocks and islanded by brown pools drowning shrubs, in a desert stretched thin by Colorado forests, hundreds of miles away tugging to don a more fertile blanket. But this was not the Arizona desert I fled years ago, the scorching hell of the Gila River Indian community. Had they fled too? those sweltering, heat-stroking days. The soggy, battered desert was cornered by a bully of a storm, and violent forces elsewhere, with their droughts, blizzards, and twisters, assault helter-skelter because our water-covered satellite is star-crossed, literally. We swing around a sun that vagabonds among other orbs, millions among billions of burning giants in our galaxy alone. And beyond that, an undisclosed calculation of star-fields wink beyond summing. I can only muse how many pearls the ocean bottom harvests any more than my eye spine can stretch into what my Pima ancestors call Thalm Yet we dare wonder, don't we, what is beyond the Pima universe? Human imagination, torturously limited by proof, sighs "Aha!" Uh-huh, to what simmers yonder the ladle cupping the mysteries of our galactic wild. Such whims are but inherited ancestral patterns." We fill it, however, that colorful bounty of starlight crisscrossing through plains of darkness to sunburn the desert, our necks, the oceans. Oceans that belch vicious and clumsy landscapers that snip snip forests or mudslide mountains, as if the ranges themselves were mere hedges or rock gardens. Yet storms strengthen roots, send seeds adrift and scatter wildlife to sturdier nests. But do not be fooled as I was that December, as nature offers only enough respite before she too must get on with it. That was the attitude of the motherland last winter. Get. On. With. It. My squint studied the storm stifling the towering mountain as if I was a boy watching his parents fight. And when I thought the muscular peaks would rip the rainy fabric into shreds, exposing naked sky, turbulent and darker sheets rolled over the Sierra Estrellas and my need for the sun's real heat to dry my pruned soles and dripping black hair was smothered by swarms of hail with yellow jacket stings. Where did great, 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 great Pima orphans flee during these rare storms? Did they dare shiver in mudrooms crumbling like stale gingerbread, petrified the stormy coral would waterlog their nest? Because in the wild, water drips through everything. Streaming through grass-lined ramadas and mud-bricked walls, gushing through caves and newly born washes, slushing through wombs and veins, as it did for my ancestors on that basin. It wrung out for me, those soggy clouds, because my sneakers were muddied and my drenched slacks and coat seemed to weep. I was not prepared for this. I escaped inside my rental car, which shivered from the thickening weather, and immediately the windows fogged. I was blinded. I wiped the glass, but condensation was quicker than what my wet sleeves could clear. I sat and waited for a break in the weather that did not arrive. The wind only roared deeper, stripping leaves from stalks that pattered the car. I drove away defeated and soon placed miles between the stormy peaks and myself, where the rain went lazy. How I wanted to hike a mile into the range and find waterfalls tripping down slopes or witness snow-frosting mountaintop nipples. I urgently wanted to stare winter in her eye. Such enchantments always tease me. As a schoolboy, I'd climb the monkey bars to catch South Mountain peeking over suburban rooftops. To hike cliffs and sniff sweet-smelling greasewort bushes was Her Majesty Nature ringing. I'd fidget in class, glaring at a small square window near the door, sunlight wanting in, me wanting out. The worst was music class, in which there were no windows. The fortuitous 50 minutes was art class when the metal shutters opened to allow spring to illuminate my macaroni portrait. But why this yearning to venture elsewhere and tread the train? Simply, I knew as a boy what I was going to trust as a traveler. Like other descendants of hunters and gatherers, with their periphery spotting seasons lighting yonder or the scarcity of game outside their nine-to-five window, there's always something better shaping elsewhere, out there. And I was missing it. So much missing occurred in boyhood that enough happened for me to leave the desert when I was a young man, partly because vagabonding is in my Pima veins, trickling with some of that Hohokam blood. The Pimas are descendants of the Hohokam, which translates from the O'odham language to those gone, word selected by archaeologists investigating the vast empire of ancient hohokam farmers who once etched hundreds of miles of canal systems in and around present-day phoenix arizona starting at a hop skip and a jump away of 1700 years ago but a millennium and some pocket change later around 1450 ce the hohokam disappeared with no firm reason or evidence other than what best guessing can theorize that they migrated to other fertile lands due to drought and famine then dispersing the empire thinner after subsequent and unpredictable flooding, the Hohokam exiled themselves, start to finish. Every so often a village loon attests aliens kidnapped the ancient people, yet no one knows where they went. The 50 to 60,000 villagers stretched over the desert in their prime. A summer-baked adobe castle erected by the Hohokam crumbles today. Sivanva'ki, or the great house, is but the last remnants of the Hohokam empire expired along with their canals, some of which have water pumping through their antique arteries today. Yet these ruins are ruined by the enemy, our enemy, time. And what is time but a reserve, like water or love, that dwindles, because when it's depleted does real thirst set in, the kind that eats people to disappear, those old-time bones vanished? It traverses hither and thither in my body that ancient itch. After I shook off the winter storm, I wonder if I was commuting over Hohokam bones scattered across the wild. I imagine ants on sunnier days, excavating up and under spines as they tunnel their own empire around skeletons. But the bones, indeed if they were still there, the ants, the desert, drowned. Cracked skulls were thoughts had once calculated, brains kindling human dreams and desires, were stuffed with waterlogged soil. Those olden skulls asserted living as bidding adieu and like the pathway I journeyed toward, the Hohokam had moved on. Not so many years ago, I vanished too, returning in stutters. But this is home, Uncle hinted the next day. He inquired when I was moving back to the desert. I don't want to, I replied. Uncle muzzled his tongue. I remember that guilty feeling returning when weeks later, there was a man taunting another in the farthest outskirts of a different desert at a bus stop in Sydney, Australia. The man grinned because an audience watched I ate lunch, calculating why such rudeness, and diagnosed the aggravator, mental illness exacerbated by amphetamines, a diagnosis I unconfidently deemed treatable because we see, of course, what we want to see, a narrative told to our liking. So the tale goes like this. Since elementary school, I fantasized about sensing and surviving an earth millisecond, a view of a black hole gasping its opening in hail or petting an outwardly cell, unfolding its stretch while at marathons on a lifelong expedition, or listening to lisps and calculations beyond human measure, or at the very least, idolizing those who can surpass destiny in favor of the aforementioned wisdom voyaging. I cannot determine whether it is I or the curiosities themselves that are eclipsed by the desert, so I bade goodbye to the motherland, dreaming years later I was on a faraway beach when it seemed two moons pinching the blue-eyed bay into the troposphere. The sister moon stretched the deep-rooted current into glassy skyscrapers, which soon collapsed upon themselves, bobbling a sailboat along the choppy aftermath. Yet it dawned on me as the dream tapered. I left home for an adventure, and in doing so, I abandoned the motherland where lunar forces will never have tidal power, since water, no matter how flooding, does not last long in the desert. Yet it's Hohokam blood that suffers a droughts, The bloodline, once gushing from over 50,000 at their peak, is dehydrated to zero. I count their descendants as if I was a sunburnt farmer tallying ears of corn. Those descendants, the Pima, which is not a real name but a Spanish designation, are seeds from last year's crop craving rich soil. They're in that cool, dry place protected from rodents and mold, waiting out wet winter. But how fruitful is my drifting kernel, the lonesome off-color seed that escaped? I'm not self-pollinating, no matter the exertion. (laughs) And desert advice goes unchanged. Grow in your season. Our tribe's name, the one lost along the way, is Akimo Otham, people of the river. But our waterway dried up. The Gila River is missing. I thought it would flow again that rainy evening. I parked on a bridge, but discovered weeds and nothing else in the damp riverbed. The river flowing is someone else's memory now. Nature is purposeful, as she always is, its femininity and not calloused hands tending the next crop since spring is impatient. But winter, in her slippery, short-lived season, lured me out the next morning before sunrise could warm my eyes. There I wandered the roads in darkness, hunting the path of a recent ancestor, that of Ira Hayes, the war hero forever stained on a photograph of six Marines raising the American flag at Iwo Jima. Winter took him somewhere among these lands, freezing him in stasis, in his sleep underneath a blanket of stars. It seems to make sense to die in comfort where one is from, but had the choice been yours, would you let the desert womb that bore you slay you? Many make plans on how they'll go, but no one sees oneself dead. But she sees the desert, keen on my stumble through brush and puddle, wondering how much longer this traveler will hold together in darkness, this Pima pilgrim returning to live or die, Maybe both, since a day hatched is a yoke cracked, sunlight streaming across the wild, thinning wearily into evening. Then it's gone. The day, the time remaining, its shattered shell, its prospects, finished. Fresh light rose. The desert stirred anew, revealing a mysterious blue awakening. The sky was nourished, scrubbed clean. In the wild, it was curious. My parched nest, at least how I remembered it, was intertwined with fresh color. I felt displaced, a Hohokam descendant, beak-twisted by desert dawn, unmade to welcome a strange day, nay, a strange world, in my morning, caw, awed by a sinewy, handsome horizon, sang off tune. No longer was this home. Kakadoodle dam Thank you.
0: Sound Pages is a Jackstraw production. The 2017 curator of this program is Jordan Amani Keith. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Alyssa Keen and Daniel Gunther. Recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, and Tom Stiles. Narrator is Alyssa Keen. And executive director of Jack Straw Cultural Center is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by the Steve Griggs Ensemble, produced through the Jackstraw Straw Artist Support Program, the Jackstraw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jackstraw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.